man, this, place, this church has got a lot of kids because it was like super duper full and now there's like empty spots. You people have got a lot of children. That's why we're all so exhausted. Isn't it? <laughs> you know, you might have noticed this morning that there is a, a, an important group of people that is absent from our midst. The pastoral staff is gone this week and be in prayer for them because they are suffering for Jesus in Hawaii, and, um, you know, for some odd reason, uh, we are, I, I don't know if you know this, our church is part of a, a larger denomination called the Christian Missionary Alliance, and part of the district uh, in which our church falls uh, also includes Hawaiian churches as, and churches uh, in California and other western states, and so they get together as a church leadership, and for some odd reason this year when they decided to have the uh, church leadership meeting in Hawaii, all of our pastors decided that they needed to be a part of the church leadership. They're receiving, I guarantee you, a much-needed uh, reprieve, and actually, in all seriousness, do pray. Um, for some weird reason, uh, God has used our little rinky-dink church um, to do um, some great things, not just in our town and community, but uh, he's using us in the midst of our denomination, which is reaching not just our region, but the world. Uh, it is amazing the things that God is doing when we align ourselves together as Christians. And so do, do pray that that would be a great time uh, for not just our leaders, but also the denomination as a whole. So that leaves um, the B team in charge to try to help you worship this morning. Uh, and so I didn't mean that about Gabe and Sarah, of course not. But what I meant is, is uh, the elders are kind of here amongst you, kind of helping everything run this morning. Uh, elder just means that we help the pastoral team, but we have jobs the rest of the week. And so my name's Brad, I'm one of the elders, and I get the pleasure of sharing the word with you this morning. Before we jump into that, just a couple of quick announcements. Number one, if you are brand new to our church, uh, this is your first time or your first couple of weeks, and you're thinking, maybe I want to plug in, we want you to be able to get plugged in. And so hopefully when you came in, you were given a little pamphlet, uh, a bulletin, whatever word you want to associate with that folded piece of paper. In there is a card that you can put your personal information on. If you take that back to the info booth, lots of things will happen. Number one, we'll know who you are and we'll know how to get a hold of you. Number two, we'll give you a free gift for coming and a gift certificate to our coffee house over there to try to help entice you to recognize that this is a place that bribes its people into happiness. But in, in, in all reality, um, the, the fact is, what we do on Sunday mornings, the music and the message, that is a component. But a church is not a church unless the church is interacting with one another. And in order to do that, you have to actually know who's a part of your church. So if you want to be a part of us, we're so happy that that's the decision that you're making. And that's just one more tool that we've got for that. Another couple of quick announcements. Um, in the month of March, can you believe it? It is March already. It is March. It feels like June, but it's March. And in March, uh, we've got two things starting. Number one, uh, the, one of the ministries that we do here is uh, called Foster the Sierras. It supports uh, foster and adoptive families as they go through uh, the, the difficult blessing that it is to care for the state's children. 
Um, and so we are having a focus month of prayer that is guided, uh, guiding our church. And if you choose to be a part of that, uh, you can reach out to uh, this ministry. Probably the easiest way is to contact Allie Richardson by email, and she will kind of hand you out how you can be guided in your prayer. Uh, if you don't want to do the guided prayer thing, that is absolutely fine. You can be in prayer for that ministry as it comes upon your heart. The other thing that you could email Allie Richardson about if you're interested is if you are a lady and looking to study the book of Micah, Allie is going to be starting another study, um, a Bible study focused on the book of Micah. You can reach out to Allie at that email address um, and she will send you directions to her house and you can join in with uh, the rest of the gals that are gathering in March. One of the last things, uh, last is not the right word, one of the things that we like to do as often as we possibly can is to try to celebrate the things that God is doing in our midst, the things that God is doing with our people, and the, the ways in which God is using our church in lots of different ways so that you know and are informed of what's happening, but also at the same time you can thank God for the ways in which he's working. And so we try to have ministry moments where we highlight different ministries that are going on. And we try to have missions moments where we highlight different missionaries and missionary endeavors that are occurring uh, in the United States and the rest of the world. Uh, I want to invite Jeff Gilpin to come on up. He is our Awana missionary, and he's going to tell you a little bit about what it means to be an Awana missionary and what uh, the, the missions work of Awana is doing as God is working with Jeff. Well, good morning. Um, so like you said, I am an Awana missionary. And so if you don't know what Awana is, uh, it's, a, it's a global children's ministry. Uh, we're in 120 countries, uh, reaching about 4.5 million kids a week with, with the gospel, discipling, and so on and so forth. So, um, so I guess the first thing I wanted to say is thank you. Uh, this church supports our ministry financially, as well as several members here support us individually. And so I just wanted to say thank you and, and uh, let you know that you're part of what we're doing. Um, we have an Awana ministry here. Uh, we've got a great team of, of people here. If you look on the, on, the, on the floor here, all these lines on the floor are as an Awana game circle. And so every Tuesday, we've got about 80 to 100 kids uh, running around the circle, playing games. The ministry here is led by Ben. He does a great job. And... Uh, so when I'm here in town, I help out with that. The other thing I do um, is I, the, the ministry area that I'm responsible for is the state of Nevada, eastern Sierra of California, so here, South Lake Tahoe, Mammoth, all the way down to Bishop, um, and then northern Arizona, parts of northern Arizona. Um, so I oversee the, the ministry there. But then I also supervise a team of four other missionaries. So I oversee the ministry in Alaska, Utah, north and west Texas. Our team uh, serves about 300 churches uh, in that area, uh, representing about 20,000 kids. So 20,000 kids a week are hearing the gospel in that area. So, um, so people ask me what I do as I want a missionary. And so I travel around, uh, I talk to pastors, talk to churches, do trainings. Really the way I see my ministry is I uh, advocate for kids and talk to pastors. You know, a lot of places I go, children's ministry is viewed as how do we keep the kids busy while the adults do the real ministry. Um, and uh, the only thing about that is it's very short-sighted. And so uh, places I go that have a healthy, strong children's ministry, the church is booming because there's new members. Churches that don't, they're just dying. So getting pastors to see that. You know, one of the things we're talking to pastors now about is that you're building, or we're building, the church of 2050. 
And um, uh, you think about the kids that just ran out the room. They're going to be the pastors and missionaries and elders and, and church members of the church of 2050. And so what we do now affects the ministry 20, 30 years from now. So to get pastors to see down the road. I was in a Navajo reservation uh, a couple years ago, and this Navajo pastor told me, he said, um, he said, Navajo church will become great when old men plant trees whose shade they'll never sit under. So I thought that was very appropriate for children's ministry. And uh, so um, just a little, some statistics. Um, in the area I serve, 900,000 children under the age of 18. So what I'm sharing with the pastors in our area, I say that's a huge unreached people group. And through Awana, we probably reached three, four, five thousand 5,000 of those kids, and certainly other ministries are reaching uh, kids, but nowhere near 900,000. So if you think about that, there's two kinds of kids within that 900,000. Kids who are on their way to heaven and kids who aren't. So getting pastors to, to see that, that there's a huge unreached people group that we need to get out there and share Jesus with. The other thing is um, children are very open to the gospel. In fact, uh, statistically, half of all salvation decisions are made by people under the age of 14. Um, three quarters are made by people under the age of 18. So if you take that 900,000 and you kind of do a little math and you start thinking about it, there's extreme time urgency to reach those people, because if they're not reached by the time they're 18, there's a very high probability that they never will be. And so getting pastors to think about that, churches to think about that, that's kind of how I see my ministry. So that's a little what we do. I just want to say thank you. There's a lot of people here who support us, uh, prayer, financially, relationally, emotionally when times are tough. And so thank you. Thanks, Jeff. All right. Well, thanks for that. Uh, we're going to turn into the Bible here for a moment. If you don't have one and would like to use one of ours, we have some beautiful men that have large stacks of Bibles in their hand. And this, it would bring them great joy if you would wave at them. They would love to put a Bible in that hand. Plus, you get to just glory in the splendor of their fantastic looks as they do that. They're chosen specifically for their good looks. <laughs> Once you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Colossians 3. If you're using one of our church Bibles, we're going to be on page 984. Once you've gotten there, go ahead and stand together. Uh, we have a, a, a tradition here at Sierra Bible Church. No, seriously, stand together. Uh, we, we have a tradition here to honor God by honoring His Word. And we will read our passage. I will read our passage for us as we stand in honor of him. We're going to be in Colossians 3. Are we there? I want to give everybody a chance to see it. All right. Colossians 3, starting in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, 
then you also will appear with him in glory. Father, I'm excited to share this text with your people this morning because I know that what you have in store for us far exceeds any way I can explain it. Thank you for involving us in your beauty. We give you this time. Amen. You can be seated. A little while ago, there was this weird cultural phenomena. Not sure if you caught it when it was happening, um, but society went a little bit crazy on the, on the idea of zombies. Do you remember this at all? It was probably most culminated, there was like a show that was kind of a big deal called The Walking Dead. I've never seen it, couldn't recommend it or not recommend it to you. But that was a pretty big deal. But like they were making zombie TV shows, zombie movies. They, if you, if you actually like went to a sporting goods store, you could like buy gun targets that were zombies. It, you actually like would shoot them and they'd like ooze like blue, blue like muck out of the places where you shot. I, even people, you would see it and every once in a while there's still some people that have them. Uh, they have like the stickers on the vehicles, like zombie apocalypse recovery vehicle or certified zombie hunter or what, whatever. The ca- have you seen what I'm talking about? Okay, good. Good, good, good. I am the type of person that when I see cultural fads, I have a tendency, instead of joining in with them, um, I'm sure that there are some that I've joined in with and I don't even really realize that I have, but a lot of the times... My personality is I kind of question them. What, what is going on here? Why have we all of a sudden like, started talking about zombies? And why is that even a thing that zombies are, are on our mind? And I'm not going to tell you that I fully can understand it at this point. I know that part of it has to do with the fact that our culture loves violence, but that's a whole other conversation for a whole other day that we're not going to deal with this morning. But there's another part of it, too. And I promise you, I'm actually going to be able to connect this to, the, to Scripture at some point. I didn't want to just come up here to talk about zombies. But I wonder if deep within us, we're intrigued by the concept of living dead people because there's a deeper story unfolding around us that has to do with this theme. I wonder. Let's look at the text because I feel like the text has a connection to this idea that I want to share with you. First of all, verse, verse 1, if, therefore, now stop, if, is that a conditional word? Okay, so a couple of you are familiar with how I roll. Uh, that, see, that would be a cultural phenomenon in which I've just, how I roll. Why do we say that? Why do, anyway, I'm subject to it too. Uh, one of the things I like to do because it helps you to stay engaged, at least that's the theory, is I'm going to ask some questions and I will throw them softball-sized questions and all you got to do is swing and the ball will hit the bat. I'm not going to ask you any trick questions where you're going to shout out a wrong answer and then feel like a fool. It's not going to happen, okay? So most of the time I'll ask you really easy questions to answer and I want you to answer back. That keeps us all kind of engaged, not a spectator sport, okay? All right? We're getting there. All right, all right, all right. So let's try this again. If, is it a conditional word? That was really good. That actually was good. Okay. 
If is indeed a conditional word. So what that means, if it's a conditional word, is that does this passage apply to everyone in this room? Not necessarily, right? That one was a little bit harder. I saw the hesitation on your face. You're like, what? What? Is he trying to trick me? No, not trying to trick you. There's enough people outside those doors who are trying to trick you. That's not what I'm going to do, okay? But the, the fact is this passage probably is not referencing everybody in this room. And in a moment, you'll see why. But I want you to recognize that this is a conditional type of situation. If you have been raised in Christ, I'm going to stop you there. I need to share with you a couple of different ideas here. For, because this, this word here, being raised in Christ, it started out originally in the original language to kind of mean like waking somebody up from a depth of sleep, to like to, to, to rouse them from sleep. But by this point in Christian history, it had really taken the idea of being wakened from death. And in order to try to understand where this passage is going, or how this passage is going to talk about the group of people who have been wakened from death, you need to understand the idea of life and death in Scripture. So I'm going to share with you for a moment, before we get back to the text, uh, a, a thing that I want to title just briefly. I'm going to call it some big word. It's not scary um, but I went to, went to college and I paid a lot of money for big words, so I got to use them. Otherwise, I'm not getting my money's worth. But I need to talk to you about the metaphysics of life and death. And that metaphysics may sound like a really scary word. It's totally not. It's a really useful word because a lot of the times I'm talking to people and the idea that I want to share with them is an idea that most of you in this room would probably agree with me on, that there's more that is going on around us than we can actually see. There's, uh, I grew up um, with a cartoon. They made movies into it later. I never saw the movies, but the cartoon was called Transformers, right? And Transformers were known as more than meets the eye, right? You, you remember? Some, more of you in second service knew, knew Transformers, which does my heart good. What they were trying to tell you about the Transformers is that what you were looking at was not quite the whole picture, and then sometimes I'll have conversations with people and what I try to get them to understand is that the stuff that you see is only one layer of the things that are going on around us. Those things that are going on around us that you couldn't see, that scientists couldn't necessarily test per se, these are metaphysical realities, just as real as the physical realities but they are not physical realities. And what we need to talk about is the metaphysics of life and death in Scripture to understand this passage. Let me take you through this really quick. Number one, you need to understand that each of us is born with a terminal disease. We've all been born with the terminal disease. There's not just some people that have it and some people that don't have it. Every single one of us was born with a terminal disease. And that disease is often referred to in Scripture as sin. The fancy word for it occasionally shows up as iniquity. But all of us are born into sin. We all have it. The thing that gets tricky is because even though the, we've all been born into sin and we're separated from God as a result, we have this disease but can still function for a time. We still are able to function, and sometimes that functioning even has a look to it like we're functioning fairly well. The problem is that no amount of 
good functioning or mild success can take care of the disease. We can't fix the disease by functioning well. It's just living a good life that's still terminal in nature. The only way to deal with the disease is to die to it. That's the irony. The only way to, the only way to deal with our terminal disease is to die. There are a lot of passages that support the ideas that I'm sharing with you here, but I want to show you this passage from Jesus' words specifically. Keep your finger in Colossians 3, but go over to John chapter 12. I promise I'm not going to make you jump around all over Scripture to try to support all of this stuff, but I do want you to see from Jesus' words how Jesus talks about this concept of our need to die. In John chapter 12, we're introduced in the scene starting in verse 20, where there are some people that want to come and see Jesus. If you read the Gospels, you'll find out that people had all kinds of reasons for which they wanted to come to Jesus. But these guys, we don't necessarily get their reasons, but Jesus had something to say in response. Let's take a look at John 12, starting in 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir... We wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus responds this way. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 24, truly, truly. Whenever you hear Jesus say that and it's written down that way, that means, hey, I'm going to tell you something that's like really important. Pay attention. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth, and what? Good. It remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servants be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You need to understand that what Jesus is saying in this moment to these men that wanted to come and see him is that the crucial component, the agricultural idea I'm going to use to describe to you this crucial component is that death is necessary for true life to begin. That grain of wheat needs to die in order for fruit to be born. Another big passage, if you are a note taker and writing something down, go back and meditate on like the first 12 or so verses of John 15 where Jesus talks about uh, us being the, the branches and him being the vine, the Father being the vine, and how we need to abide or live in Christ in order for fruit to be born from our lives, so much so that Jesus says it directly, apart from me, you can do nothing. Our terminal disease requires us to die, but here's the beauty, is that Christ who then accepted that death and was raised, displayed power over physical death so that we could be reunited with God, the source of life. That's why it was so crucial for Jesus to die on our behalf. So everyone that you meet on a day-to-day basis falls into one of two categories, and only one of these two categories. 
Category one, they are either still in their terminally condemned state or they have been resurrected and reconnected with the source of life. Now, one more sub-point that you're going to need to try to understand before we dive into this, this section is that there is a, another, there's an, a, a paradox is the idea. I try, a lot of the times you'll hear me stutter because the words that come to my head are like, like big words that I don't necessarily want to use because I feel like it like makes you feel I'm trying to impress you. or That's not at all what I'm trying to do. So instead, I just bumble and stumble and stutter. and It makes me, you, oh, it's so cute. He's stuttering. Um, but instead, the, the paradox that's in Scripture, which basically just means two things that are connected with one another, but it's not, necessarily, it's not going the way that you would expect it to go, is that we are exposed time and time again into the already, something that's already happening, but then there's a component to it in which it's not yet happening as well. Many of the spiritual, many things in the spiritual life have this dual time dynamic, but most notably um, is the kingdom of God. Jesus talked about nothing more in his ministry other than the kingdom of God. And there's an aspect in which the kingdom is occurring now. You and I can join with Christ as king as he rules, but one day that kingdom will have a mighty success tipping point and things will be set right and everything will be as it should be. There's an already component and a not yet. When it comes to the idea of our death and resurrection, there is also an already component and a not yet. Those who have died and are resurrected with Christ are living with him now. But... Obviously, there's still a physical aspect to our being that continues to decay, right? And all of the people in the seats with back pain said, amen, right? Right? And additionally, there's a spiritual aspect that continues its rebellion against God, right? And all of the tired parents who accidentally yelled at their kids this week, they say, amen, right? And they say so apparently a little bit more fearfully because we're all afraid of the fact that we yelled at our kids this week. So it happens, right? We're broken, Right? There's rebellion that is still working its way in our soul. And we need to understand these physical and spiritual aspects still continue to be a part of us. We continue to be involved in the process of living in Christ. And as we grow in Christ, that rebellion gets progressively squashed. This is the place from which Paul issues his command. Let's go back to the text and see how he would respond based upon that understanding. So if, therefore, you are one of the ones in the category in which you have been raised in Christ, what ought we do? We, got, we have to seek or search for or pursue the things that are above, heavenly things, where Christ is seated on the right hand of God. Now, Paul, being a good Jew, has a tendency sometimes to write in what's called Jewish parallelism. You see a ton of this in the book of Psalms, where something will be written, and then the next line sounds a lot like the first line, but there's different words that are used, but it kind of adds a different component to that idea so that you can kind of get it a little bit more. Paul does this with verse 1 and verse 2. He provides a parallel statement. So let's look at verse 2. The things that are above, the heavenly things, keep these things in mind, not the things that are on earth. We need to talk about this word that Paul uses here. Keep these things in your mind. 
The difficulty with this word, one of the commentators that I was reading in preparation for this made a, uh, made a great point about this word. It's that there's, there's not necessarily a great one word in English that you can use to translate the Greek verb that Paul uses here. Over the, over the centuries, as we've been talking about human beings and we talk about all of our metaphysical components, there's that word again, our, our non-physical components, our mind, our, our, our soul, our spirit, our heart, our will, all of those different things, we, we talk about them in lots of different ways. But the idea behind this verse, even though it says the word, keep these things in your mind, you might be tempted to just think that all of this affects just your brain, the stuff that's going on inside your brain. That's where we normally talk about your mind. However, instead, this verse actually talks about combining both our cognitive, our mental abilities, and our visceral, this was the word from the commentary and I really liked it, our visceral abilities. The, the visceral stuff is the stuff that kind of is the driving force behind it, that, that, uh, that urge, that, that, uh, that thing that you don't always necessarily have a ton of control over it, but sometimes as you continue to grow in Christ, you are able to affect those things that you want. And this idea here of keeping these things in your mind combines both of the things in which we think about and the things for which we long. Essentially, what Paul is telling us as a result is that we are supposed to be directing our attention with the entirety of who we are as a person. The you that is you, not just the thing that I see, but the you that talks to you inside of you. You know what I'm talking about? This is like fancy philosopher talk right now, but the, I think you, could, you, you got this concept. There's a part of you that's talking to you sometimes, right? So the you that's, do it, that's like evaluating and thinking all of that, that whole part of you is the part that Paul is saying we need to be focusing that towards things that are above. Now, now that we understand what the command is, it forces us to ask the question, so what does it mean to focus on the things which are above? So I want to make sure that we're clear on what that question is. So I want to make sure that you're asking that question. So what I want you to ask is, what does it mean to seek the things above? So I'm going to say, let's ask the question, what does it mean? Good, I'm so glad you asked. So glad. What does it mean? I think it's important to recognize that there are a lot of people in Christian history that have probably gotten this wrong. Not that we are somehow superior because we are more modern than these people, but do you, could you see how somebody could take this idea and automatically turn it into, well, then probably the best thing for me to do with my life would be to hide in a cave and to meditate solely on spiritual realities until my body dies and decays. And you can see in Christian history that people have actually taken it to that point. I'm not saying that the monastic movement is completely wrong. Some, some things have been completely culturally engaged, but there have been scores of people that have come before us that have literally separated themselves from the culture as a whole that they might meditate on spiritual realities. What does it mean to seek the things above? I would argue for you that from this text and from many others, that it's probably best to understand the idea of seeking things above as the idea of joining in the heavenly conversation and mission. 
Now, I have to recognize that in history, there have been plenty of people that feel like God kind of like wound up the earth and like started it spinning, and then he kind of sits back and goes, hey, check out what's going on over there. There are plenty of people that think that. I disagree with them for lots of reasons, and I'm not going to get into all of those reasons, but if you find yourself struggling with that concept, let's talk about that separately. But our church as a whole, and Christendom as a whole, still believes that God is intimately involved in the affairs of human nature. The stuff that's going on in the world, God's involved in it. And there's something wonderful about that. Is there not? Thank you, Nancy. Right? I, maybe you've noticed it on social media, but the panic moment uh, has, is starting because we have a political election coming up. And people love to panic about political uh, uh, elections. What's fantastic about those of us who are in Christ, knowing that God is intimately involved, and when we read in Scripture, we find that God is intimately involved, not just in our individual lives, but in the way in which nations interact with one another. He doesn't just like watch somebody get elected and be like, oh no, what are we going to do? These things are all happening with his involvement. And the beautiful part is when you seek the things above, what you're doing by seeking your God is not disengaging from reality, but diving right in because he has dove right in. And you're following his path to the end, jumping right in. Joining in the heavenly conversation and mission then on a moment-by-moment -moment basis starts making us ask the questions of our interactions. How is God working in the life of this person with whom I'm talking? How is God involved in this circumstance? How would Jesus be working my job? How would Jesus treat my family? What's beautiful about it is as we focus on our God and the spiritual realities, as we, as we focus the entirety of who we are on what God is doing, that naturally drives us back towards the focus of the people around us. But no longer are we just doing it to be nice or kind or to be a good person. We're doing it because we are involved with God in his rescue mission of the kingdom of God. In verse 3, Paul provides for us an explanation as to why we ought to be doing this. Look at the first word of verse 3. What is it? Don't be afraid. I see a few of you are nodding off. Stick with me. It gets a little warm in here. What's the word? For. Is for an explanatory word? Does it explain something? Oh, gosh. Don't be afraid. I'm not going to trick you. Yes. Yes, it is. Okay, is for an, an explanatory word? Yes, so Paul is explaining the point from 1 and 2 in verse 3. He's going to give us an explanation as to why he would say 1 and 2. For, what's Paul's explanation? Three words. What is it? You have died. Sorry, I made you do math there with the three and everything. For you have died. You died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. I want you for a moment to imagine the ridiculousness that we 
face on a day-to-day basis. Imagine this. In Christ, we have entered into the process of eternal blessing. We are filled with spiritual power. We are engaged in a cosmic rescue mission. But instead, we have a tendency to pick up our old, dead, rotting flesh, put it on like a coat, and walk around like a useless zombie. That's where the zombie thing plays in. Useless probably isn't even a great word because zombies have a tendency to wreak havoc on the world around them, always eating brains and stuff. Like They're not affecting the world in a positive way. Even though we have all of these beautiful things in Christ, we have a tendency to reach back for our dead flesh to put it on and go back to our life of misery where we, we, we worry about temporary things, where we fear human institutions, where we collect dying trivialities like clothes and cars and properties and toys, finding that at the end of it, it's all decaying. If you don't know that, come work on my house with me. Every time I turn one screw, I find 17 others that are in a state of complete and utter disrepair because my house wants to fall to the ground. That's what it wants to do. Everything around you, that physical stuff, it's all decaying. And the foolish zombies that we have a tendency to be, sometimes we put on this smelly dead flesh and go around just biting and snapping at people and chasing things that will not matter. You died. Now, you have to choose to live your real life. If you do, Look at what happens in verse 4. Beautiful. When Christ appears, because he's coming back, when Christ, who is your life, then, and look at, look at how he writes this. Look at what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, Christ is coming back with fantastic glory. Look at what he actually writes. Then you also with him will appear in glory. Friends, what God has in store for you is greater than anything I can possibly describe. So much so that instead of trying to illustrate this, I figured I would just read for you one of my favorite quotes. And part of it is because I can't do a sermon without quoting C.S. Lewis at some point. It's part of my responsibilities to C.S. Lewis, I guess. (laughs) Um, He has an essay that's titled The Weight of Glory. And I want you to listen to the way in which he describes our nature as human beings and our relationship to glory. He does it so far as to say it this way. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. I know that might sound really funky, but hear out what he's talking about. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to 
may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship it. Think about what you've seen in Scripture. Even if you're not intimately familiar with Scripture, what happens every time an angel shows up in front of people? What happens? Fear. They throw themselves on the ground. Right? I mean, uh, even if you're only familiar with the Christmas story, we have a tendency to like over-Christmasize the language there. And the shepherds saw the angels and they were sore afraid. Well, you know what that means? It means they were screaming bloody murder because they thought they were going to die. Now, here's the crazy part. That's what happens when an angel shows up in front of, person, uh, in front of people. If you read the book of Hebrews, do you know what you find out about angels? that some of us are actually going to even be put into the responsibility of being their judge. That human beings are seen in a special rank even above angels. We don't become angels. That's this, un, that's this very popular wrong idea. When you die, you don't become an angel. You're not an angel. If God wanted you to be an angel, he would have made you an angel. Instead, you are a human. And there's something, even as foolish and as silly as we can sometimes be, there's something actually even greater being a human than being an angel. What Paul is reminding us here is the glory that you and I will have if we are in Christ. As C.S. Lewis says, if people were to see it now, they would strongly be tempted to worship us. Let me go back to the quote. C.S. Lewis says, You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But... It is immortals with whom we joke, work, marry, snub, and exploit immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Those of us who are in Christ, according to verse 4, when Christ appears who is your life, you will appear with him in glory. If you have eyes to see it, as we with all of our being seek the things that are above, we recognize that we walk among the immortal and we are engaged in an immortal story. And those of us who are in Christ will one day have a glory that exceeds any imaginable earthly glory, bigger than any sports fame, Bigger than any red carpet glitz. Bigger than any financial luxury that you could dream up. This is what Christ intends for us. For those of us who continue to seek him, setting our, the entirety of the internal component of who we are on him. So our direction is clear. For those of us in this room who are in Christ, we must pursue and engage 
with the heavenly story. And this is a moment-by-moment reality, not just something for our Sunday morning time together. Fortunately, God has given us a lot of tools to help, be it the words in Scripture or our brothers and sisters in the church or the spiritual disciplines. But church, this is what church is. We are helping one another, gathering together with one another in such a way that as we grow to know one another, we help each other seek to be a part of that heavenly story. We help each other not pick up this lifeless, smelly zombie flesh which we have a tendency to don ourselves with. I recognize that that doesn't necessarily fit everybody in the room. If is a conditional word. So I recognize that there are still people in this room who are living in their terminal state. And so I say this to you with the deepest amount of compassion I possibly can. But nothing of what you can do can undo your terminal disease. However, good news is that Christ, who can be your death and resurrection, wants to transform you into glory as well. It can be yours. As Gabe and Sarah come back up to respond to our God with music, I'm going to pray for us that we might focus and remain focused on this this week. Jesus, you are worthy of any effort that we could possibly expend. And I I know even, even me, who has the responsibility of being the super spiritual Bible speaker in the morning, I know that tomorrow I will so casually forget you. And I so don't want to. God, please, by your Spirit, tug at our hearts this week. Pull us toward yourself in such a way that everything that is in us would be seeking to be a part of the conversation that you are having, of the mission in which you are engaged. God, help us as a church to be able to be a part of what you are doing in this small little area around us, knowing that that affects significantly more things. God, we look forward to hearing of the ways in which you used us as we gather again in the future. And we ask that you would be honored because you are worthy of anything we could possibly do to bring you that honor. Amen.